Okay, um, we are going to just basically get started um, today. This is going to be a, a little bit of a different format um, because Brian is celebrating his wedding anniversary. So he is not going to be joining us today, which gives me a whole lot of space to stretch out and go deep into a topic that I'm uh, very personally interested in, um, have thought a lot about, and um, have actually kind of been, I don't know, engaged in a an ongoing conversation with Justin over months and months um, through his Tech Policy Press, uh, which is a podcast and a publication that he operates, and I'd, I'd love to learn a little bit of, more about that, um, and that he has recently also collaborated with Paul and Grant on writing a report. But before I get there, um, I want to say first, welcome everyone to the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Wednesday. September 22nd. Um, I can't believe September is almost over, but here we are. Um, and today, we are, as I, as I mentioned, going to dive right in. We're going to be talking about Facebook, about polarization, about social media, about who's to blame, who's responsible, what to do about this, this I don't know, this mess, this reality, this humanity, society, etc. Um, but first, uh, Justin Ball, why don't you guys uh, come up, introduce yourselves, Give us a little bit of background on where you're from, the work you do, um, and how you're coming to this conversation today. Justin, you want to go first? Uh, I can do, Paul. Uh, so I'm uh, Justin Hendricks, and I uh, am the editor of a site called Tech Policy Press, which has been around for about a year. Uh, it focuses on the intersection of tech and democracy. I'm also uh, a research associate research scientist at NYU, where I uh, do some work related to uh, looking at uh, disinformation. And I teach a course called Technology, Media, and Democracy that looks at the intersection uh, of those issues. Um, and I look forward to being part of the conversation tonight. Awesome. Paul? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm Paul Barrett. Um, I wear a couple of different hats, also at NYU. Um, I'm uh, the director of the center. For, I'm the deputy director of the Center for Business and Human Rights, uh, which is part of NYU's uh, Stern School of Business. Um, I also uh, am an adjunct professor at NYU's law school, uh, where I teach, I co-teach a seminar every year called Law, Economics, and Journalism, and. Uh, as Justin said, he was kind enough to uh, join us uh, in working on a research report that we just put out um, about the role of social media in uh, intensifying uh, political polarization uh, in the United States. And this report is uh, kind of typical of the work we do. We do extended research reports that I would you know, could, uh, describe as uh, white papers um, that try to synthesize information, uh, synthesize research and other information that's been done, provide analysis and then recommendations for how problems that we identify might be addressed. Um, so I'm very glad to be here with you tonight and thanks for inviting me. Awesome. Um, very helpful. And just to sort of, I guess, set the, the groundwork for how I imagine this conversation will go since I am rolling solo and Brian is not here. Um, I think mostly we're going to have kind of a conversation between the three of us, um, diving in a bit deep. Um, for those of you, of course, I'm just jumping in who, who forgot or don't know who I am. Um, 
uh, I'm, I'm of course Chris Messina, and I have previously worked both on social media platforms um, when I worked in Google Plus, and I've also worked on the other side of the the aisle on the open source and open standards side of the house. Um, you know, specifically, my contribution to social media is the hashtag, but I've also worked on other technologies um, in that space, and um, I've just been I'm just super interested in the connection between technology and society and people and behavior and and one of the things I actually want to get to in this conversation is something I've been thinking a lot about, um, which is incentive structures and decision architectures. Um, I won't get into that too closely right now, but you know, I guess maybe Justin, Paul, why don't why don't you guys start with where your report stems from? Because you guys dropped this report, and I put it up in the nest um, in the space before the Wall Street Journal published their sort of Shark Week. Uh, file drop, um, enumerating a bunch of stories, which I think we're going to get into, about how Facebook has, over the years, sort of systematically not taken action um, against problems that were, on, were going on in the platform when it might have compromised you know, growth, engagement, the bottom line, etc. So, what was the work or what was the impetus for what you did? Is this just sort of like a, you know, a regular thing that you do every six months or where did this report and information come from? Sure. Um, I'll take a stab at that and then, and then Justin can uh, fill it out. Um, yes. In answer to your question, is this the sort of thing we do every six months? It's a little, little bit more frequent than that, but we do the, the center for business and human rights looks at human rights issues um, as they pertain to uh, companies as opposed to more traditional human rights uh, focus on uh, governments. Um, in, in connection with that mandate, um, I've been writing reports for the last four years on various aspects of the social media industry and its role and responsibilities um, in a democracy. Um, and this uh, particular topic uh, you know, I think the, the way to think about it is, you know, we, we decided to do this in the wake of uh, the January 6th insur insurrection on Capitol Hill. Um, and so, a short time after uh, that uh, dismaying event, uh, uh, Facebook, in, in a variety of uh, contexts, uh, made strong assertions that the uh, political polarization or divisiveness or partisan hatred um, that... Uh, so many people were not, uh, even more concerned about uh, than usual, uh, had nothing to do with Facebook. That there was no uh, the, the evidence out there uh, in the social science uh, journals um, did not support the idea that uh, Facebook played a role in uh, high levels of political polarization. Um, and that, in a sense, was kind of almost a challenge. And uh, Justin and I had been talking about doing something together uh, for some time, and we decided to uh, collaborate on this uh, and to look at the social science research, figure out what it says, uh, talk to some of the um, people who have done that research firsthand, ask them what the significance of their work, um, and and basically provide a response to what uh, Facebook had been uh, asserting. We, and, and our goal was not only to answer Facebook, but to clarify this really important question. Uh, Namely, you know, what contribution, if any, does widespread use of social media uh, uh, play in, term, in terms of uh, heightening uh, political divisiveness? Um, so that's kind of the, the background to uh, what, what we did. As far as I'm concerned, Justin may have other uh, perspectives on it. 
Yeah, I just add um, three specific things, Chris. One was, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's testimony uh, to Congress in the House in March, um, where he made some very specific comments about um, these issues in his opening statement, which I'd refer people to, um, and kind of offered his diagnosis for what uh, is to blame for the division in American politics at the moment. Um, which he which he laid at the feet of political and media uh, elites um, who had had sown division, uh, which you know of course is not wrong, um, and then went on to to talk about you know social media and technology being part of the solution, um, and then Nick Clegg wrote a medium piece uh, which got into some of these matters in in detail, um, and in particular advanced the argument that you know this is not a not settled science um, and. You know, which is true, um, and and yet, you know, uh, seem to kind of obfuscate uh, some aspects after our review. Um, and then I, I would add too that BuzzFeed uh, published uh, a report about an internal memo at Facebook uh, that dealt with some of these issues, and you know, appeared to kind of offer a, a sort of playbook for employees in terms of how to think about these issues. So all of those things together. Kind of served as the impetus for our report. I mean, there's so many aspects of this. There's so many directions that I want to go in. One of the challenges of having this conversation is to piece apart kind of what we're talking about, why it's important, and maybe just like how to structurally think about it, and then what to maybe advocate for. And so, man, how do we even start this? However, I do want to say a few things. One of the things that I realized last night as I was going through all these materials and, and I guess doing a little more background research is there have been recently some, I guess, analogies or uh, comparisons from what Facebook is doing in the playbooks that they're using for their PR and marketing outreach with big oil and big tobacco. And I think one of the reasons why it's important for us to remember those examples and how historically these, you know, literally cancer-causing industries have been able to persist for decades um, is because of the way in which they uh, talk to the public, talk to regulators, talk to the rest of us, tried to downplay whether it was like climate change or whether it was the, uh, the cancerous consequences of their products. And so that's a well-worn playbook. This is not exactly the same context, but what I noticed was that uh, Facebook, I believe, is the sixth, I think it's the sixth, most valuable company in the world. Um, it is in the echelon of having a trillion dollar valuation. And the only non-tech company that ranks in the top, I think, seven companies um, is Saudi Aramco, which has, I think, $2.3 trillion of market cap. The rest are tech. And so that's why this is so important. You know, I was thinking, like, why do we fixate on Facebook so much? What difference does it make? But it's because of one, the, the value that accrues to these platforms, and two, how they do it. And then the third part is the, I don't know, even know if I want to call them externalities, the consequences of the business model and of how they actually produce all of that value for shareholders. And so what we're talking about roughly, I think, is whether or not the sort of second order effects, you know, which I think Boz, the new incoming CTO has said, you know, sometimes you're going to break a few eggs, I kill a few people, um, you know, when you're building a global social network um, and that's okay. It, maybe it's not okay. 
And maybe we think that actually these platforms should have and bear more responsibility for some of the consequences and cleaning up their Superfund sites um, from a cultural perspective. So that's one thing that I just want to put out there in terms of why we fixate on Facebook for anyone who's been wondering that or is frankly exhausted by it. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out, and Justin, you alluded to this, and Paul, you also talked about this. You guys did a, a great conversation on the Tech Policy Press podcast, was that polarization, one, and, and I'd love for you guys actually to provide a working definition of this um, in a second. Polarization has been increasing over time. Polarization has also existed throughout the history of the United States and is amplified at different moments where cultural moments are occurring, You know, where there's a civil rights movement, for example, or other things like that are going on. The other thing that I feel like has been missing from this conversation, and this is the part that you alluded to, Justin, is that specifically talk radio and conservative talk radio and Fox News multiplied by the effectiveness of social media to amplify through virality uh, messages that lead to certain types of behaviors, ideologies, or outcomes. And specifically, one of the things that I think, Paul, you mentioned in the research was that uh, the demographic who is 65 and older have seen an outsized increase in their polarization in the last 10 years or so, which sort of, I forget if it's 10 or 20 years, but it sort of excluded social media as being the prime driver of that. So I want to, I guess, like put those things out there as topics, and I want to help, I want you to help us kind of create relationships between them. So first, if you guys could provide kind of a definition for polarization as we understand it, why that's important, and then those other factors that might be contributing fodder, perhaps, for the polarization that social media amplifies. Okay, want me to go first? <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, so uh, you've implied um, correctly that polarization itself is a very complicated concept. Um, it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing, it can be an inevitable thing. In a democracy, particularly a two-party democracy, some degree of polarization is, is unavoidable and, and can be good. It can sharpen uh, policy Right, two sides of you know, different stuff. issues. Right. Yeah. And it can also be a byproduct of righteous, um, you know, movements for change, whether, uh, you know, a racial or gender-related uh, cultural uh, movements, uh, you know, if, if, if there's a, uh, a, a just movement to uh, give a certain group, African-Americans say, uh, you know, equality under the law, that's, that may well and has in fact uh, provoked backlash and there you have polarization. You wouldn't say we want to lower polarization and get the African-American people to stop protesting, but that wouldn't make any sense. So, that, right. so that, that's one thing, it's, it's complicated. Yep. Second, there are several, several stripes of uh, polarization, two main ones that are probably worth uh, mentioning. Um, one is um, uh, divisiveness over particular issues. And somewhat confusingly, the social scientists tend to call that uh, ideological polarization. So you and I disagree about abortion or about the appropriate level of income taxation or what to do about immigration. That, that's ideological or issue polarization. Then there's something else, effective polarization, um, which is... Is that with an uh, E or an A? A. A factor. Uh, so, effective. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, that's a form of divisiveness that I think you, you could think about as a partisan hatred. Um, I not only disagree with you 
because you're in the other group, the academics would call it the out group. Um, I, I think that by dint of belonging to the other group, you are an enemy of democracy, you are abhorrent, um, you are uh, evil, and um, pretty much anything would be justifiable to keep you out of power. So this is pure us versus them, um, Trump-style uh, uh, hostility. Vilification. You know, so, so, yeah, vilification. You're, you're the enemy of the people. Yeah. A an argument that is very difficult like, to actually have a rational you know, response to. Um, and, Wait, because who are the people uh, in that example? Well, also, how how do you prove that you're not the enemy? Of <laughs> sure, um, right. You know, how do you how do you prove that you're a patriot, not not a uh, a, a traitor, um, that that kind of thing? So, when you get very high levels of effective polarization, you um, run the risk of a series of uh, really deleterious consequences, and this is what's really most important. It's not the abstract measure of polarization that's so important, although a lot of you know, academics focus on that and chart it over time. Um, what's really important is the consequences of extreme partisan hatred. And those consequences include, uh, you know, a loss of trust in democratic institutions like this, you know, elections, uh, a, a undermining of uh, uh, respect for, uh, you know, mutually held facts, for example, uh, you know, public health responses to a lethal pandemic. And experts stand up and say, you should do the following things, get a vaccination, wear a mask when you're close to other people and so forth. And you reject that because they're in the out group. You say that that's a product of some conspiracy as opposed to listening to those facts and trying to respond to them, adapt to them. Uh, and, and ultimately, uh, you know, the, the most uh, potentially dangerous consequence is what we saw on January 6th at the Capitol, is actually political violence that because you're unhappy with the outcome of the election, rather than beginning to plan your campaign for the next election, you go and try to take over the Capitol building and search for the vice president in order to hang him. Um, you know that that's kind of a, you know a, a nightmare scenario, and it is a a complete undermining of the very basic democratic notion that elections count, and once there's an election, there's a peaceful transfer of power. Um, and that's how democracy works. Yeah. Okay. I want to. I want to hear from Justin too. I want to. I think this is the moment where, as you're describing this, what I'm imagining is the feeling or sense of disenfranchisement, and on two fronts. You know, one is that democracy doesn't really include me. It has nothing to do with me. It's a bunch of elites. It's a bunch of other people who I don't connect to who I don't know, I don't know anybody who's a representative, and therefore they don't speak for me, and yet I live in that context. And then on the other hand, there's the erosion of trust in institutions because many large institutions have proven to be untrustworthy over time. They've taken advantage of their position in society or culture, whether that's the church or whether that's big, you know, business Enron, you know, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, like th those are some of the reactions that we saw to institutional power that failed us or failed some part of our culture and society. Uh, 
So, and, and the lack of equity and inclusion across society seems to have exacerbated over the last you know, decade or so with just the way that the financial system sort of operates and works. So that seems to have created this vacuum or space for a new narrative or story to be propagated by, let's say, you know, Fox News or conservative media that kind of connects with that sense of being left behind. And then you can kind of make up whatever articulation of truth or facts that you want, because whatever it is that's on the other side is, as you said, sort of vilified or is falsified. It's fake news and so forth, because there's no way to sort of disprove in one's lived experience, which is the only real reality that a lot of people I think can trust and rely on in their own experience. And I got to imagine that a lot of people that went to the Capitol on January 6th had never been to DC before, had never actually seen the White House or any of these places. And they'd only sort of existed in this imaginary, you know, idea where the swamp needed to be drained and all these crazy things were going on that QAnon said were happening. So it feels like when you expand polarization to the breaking point, you sort of fall off a cliff, go down the rabbit hole, and you're willing to, or are very vulnerable to be exposed to all sorts of other new mythologies that cause you to behave in those violent ways. So help me understand. I mean, is that the fault of social media? Is it effective use of social media? Where do the, where does the responsibility lie given all that? And, and tell me if, of course, I've, I've got anything wrong. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Chris, um, maybe I'll just I'll just uh, I'll add one thing to your kind of um, diagnosis there. Sure. Uh, what's happening in the states right now, and then maybe Paul, if you want to kind of take on that that question that he just asked about, um, you know, is is this the fault of social media? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I, I mean, I, you know, you're you're kind of referring to like what are the underlying cleavages here um, that are driving people. Up part and it just feels like we don't causing people to behave like okay the thing is we're not coherent as a as like a culture or as a you know as a people as the american people and so we kind of talk about each other in these polarized terms and it feels like that rift is like really fundamental and one of the things that's happened is social media has exposed us to the other and we look at the other and we say i don't know you and you're not like me and now we're fighting over what is real and whether democracy exists for us or for the other or for both. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I would, uh, I, w- I would certainly, you know, um, say that, that based on the review of the social science research we looked at, I mean, certainly there are a variety of, of different cleavages in, in, in American society. Um, but one that you didn't point to, which is important and that we uh, took, uh, you know, some pains to look at and to, to cite empirical research on of course is um is race and uh you know we quote in particular liliana mason julie ronsky john kane um who looked at you know surveys across thousands of respondents across seven years 
and you know, found, uh, and I'm quoting, a wellspring of animus against marginalized groups in the United States that can be harnessed for political gain. Uh, we go on to point out other uh, results that are similar that point to uh, concerns about the ideas that non-whites will have more rights than, than others in future as compared uh, to 16% of non-Republicans who hold that belief. You know, I, just before we got on this, um, I saw a tweet, you know, that uh, Tucker Carlson's on tonight going on about, uh, you know, replacement theory and uh, and, and similar wow. ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a very, you know, very concerning uh, piece of what's happening in America right now. This is the reality um, of the American political moment. And one of the things that we wanted to kind of get across in the report is to paint a picture of the situation we're in. Um, because, you know, to some extent, the question isn't what is the role of social medias or social media in some kind of, um, you know, clinical utopian notion of democracy, but what is the role of social media in, in the democracy we've got? And, and what do you, so, I mean, that leads to a very interesting question and maybe starts to get into some of your report. What do you think a healthy culture or civilization that is using social media in a healthy way looks like and behaves like? Well, maybe before we get there, I'll, I'll kind of let Paul answer the flip side of that question, which is, yeah. How uh, is it the, now? the question you just asked. Yeah. Okay, great. So th- that question was, who's to blame? Yeah, I guess um, okay. it seemed to me, yeah, Chris was asking, uh, yeah. you know, is, is social media primarily to blame for, for the yeah. problems? Well, even before before venturing uh, an answer to that, and, and I don't think there is a certain provable answer to that primarily to blame, um, I think the first thing to say is that uh, a wide variety of uh, factors uh, contribute to uh, political divisiveness and pushing political divisiveness to the extreme that we uh, we see in American society today. Um, and we've mentioned most, if not all, of those factors. Um, you know, uh, there's uh, uh, right-wing uh, talk radio. There's uh, uh, Fox News and partisan uh, uh, cable television. Um, there's continuing uh, animus uh, across the race line. Um, there, there, you know, there are uh, uh, political elites, leaders, um, you know, and, and the recent, uh, you know, period that's probably relevant would, would probably on that score begin in the early 1990s um, uh, when uh, the style of, of leadership uh, in the Congress began to change very discernibly. Yeah. Uh, the rise of, of Newt Gingrich right. um, and the throwing out of, of traditional, you know, sort of niceties and courtliness uh, in government that, that had, at least for some generations, uh, been the rule. So you've got all kinds of uh, factors, um, and they all feed into it. And I think, you know, beginning sometime relatively recently, uh, social media uh, became one of those factors, not in the sense that it is the prime cause of, of polarization, it obviously, you know, wasn't the cause of polarization in the 70s, 80s, and 90s as divisiveness was growing in this country. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, and, and we'll, we should come back to that point in connection with the particular study you, you cited, the age group comparison study. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, but once, once social media be- became a significant factor, 
in our politics, which probably started in the 2008, 2009. Yeah, I mean, uh, sort of post-Obama, right? Right, yeah. Well, Obama's people harnessed social media for the first time in a presidential election, and, and that had an influence. But then you know, much more so beginning in the 2010s. Um, and it it really heated up once uh, Donald Trump, a uh, a master manipulator of social media, the, the, you know, the disinformation purveyor in chief, uh, uh, you know, used that, that tool, social media, uh, to, you know, to con- continually and consistently um, uh, heighten uh, divisiveness and uh, sort of enrage and inflame people. Um, and of course, he wasn't the only one. The, the really important yes. distinction, I think, is between primary cause um, and accelerant. Primary cause mm. and a heightening factor and intensification factor. And, and, and Facebook, when they not you know fairly disingenuously talk about this, repeat over and over again, there isn't evidence that we're the primary cause, that we started all this. And no one is actually saying that they started all of it. Mm. What they do is they provide a medium uh, that uh, that accelerates the, the process, makes it uh, uh, you know far more intense. So one of the things that I've been noticing, and I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know, I'm going to bounce around a little bit, probably. At least when it comes to actually, I, I'm going to pause. I don't want to do that yet because we're still talking about the polarization piece. We're talking about the the lead up to this. I'm just like, yes. I mean, the question that I'm, I'm kind of trying to understand is culpability. And is the underlying societal aspects that are already there that were present and that by creating a medium that was bi-directional, you know, I guess like what I'm trying to turn on is my Marshall McLuhan hat. You know, the medium is the message. And as we shape our mediums, our mediums then shape us. And as you said, like Trump was a very effective media manipulator, but he also started on television. And so the other thing that changed that Obama really didn't have the benefit of was, I don't know if it was uh, around 2012 or 2016 or something, maybe it was 2018, when Facebook started to notice that there was a lot more kind of zombification of newsfeed consumption happening as a result of highly produced video becoming popular on the platform. And this was something that, you know, Facebook watch wanted to build for. They wanted to go after YouTube ad dollars and they put a lot of money. I remember, you know, I have tweets about how my Facebook watch, um, icon was always, it always had like a red number one on it because they wanted me to go and watch the thing and try to get rid of the unwatch count. Um, and you couldn't, it was literally designed so that you had to go to Facebook watch because they wanted to amplify that kind of content. And then what they found was that I suppose people were just turning on videos in the background and not really paying attention and just becoming less active and less engaged and therefore um, less valuable users. But Trump Mm -hmm. did something really, uh, you know, talking about meeting the moment as a television communicator, he brought that style of bombastic communication to a platform that previously was far more static, you know, whether it was, just static images or static text to become much more like a, I mean, the McLuhan sense, a cool medium, but more interactive, more engaging, more demanding of your attention. You had to know what he had to say. So that just seems like that was a mastering of the medium built upon the fissures that already existed in culture. And Facebook sort of just sat there and was like, this is great. Growth is good. What am I missing? Well, I mean, I, I'll just jump in, Paul. Maybe you can um, yeah. 
Go ahead. Stick in there too. You know, one one of the things that um, um, you know is clear in the literature is that, that there there are you know there are a variety of different um, behaviors that are tied to uh, the issue of polarization and its relationship to social media and media uh, consumption generally. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's not necessarily any one thing, um, you know, per se. Um, and, you know, researchers have looked at this from a variety of different angles. In fact, I was looking today at another uh, meta study that's been released that looks at, um, you know, well, really dozens of, of social science uh, studies on this issue over the course of a period of years. And you know, there's a lot of different ways to think about um, how the various ways that people interact on, on, on platforms and specific platforms, you know, it's not the same across different platforms, um, how their behaviors, uh, you know, may differ across different cultures and different media environments and different geographies. Um, because, you know, what happens here in the U.S. is not the same as what happens in, well, Bosnia and Herzegovina, yep. where, uh, you know, uh, a recent study found a, a slightly different effect than um, what some of the studies that, that focus on the U.S. have found, for instance. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of nuance here. Um, you know, I guess one of the things we can point to, though, is what uh, we know about with regard to Facebook itself, uh, both from the company and then from uh, information that has been reported about the company. Um, so you can kind of look at announcements the company's made. It's, it's uh, you know, head of integrity, Guy Rosen, uh, just a couple of years ago issued a statement about what the company was doing to reduce polarization, which, you know, um, kind of implicitly suggests that the company understands that, that, that there's a connection um, and the investments that the company was making towards that. Um, we, of course, know about uh, various internal research that's been revealed more recently by the Wall Street Journal, uh, which points to a variety of different uh, phenomena which are, are, are related to the idea of, of uh of, of sowing division or, or helping to exacerbate division in society. Well, in that um, particular yeah. case, and, and I think this is like really important, right? Because one of the ways in which we're trying to understand how to either regulate or change the functioning of these platforms is to look at what levers they have at their disposal. And the thing that you're specifically talking about is the meaningful interactions initiative, I suppose, where they looked at what they tried to do was actually to correct for the video zombification that I was just describing by correcting the optimization of the newsfeed to focus more on close ties and on promoting comments. And they just kind of let the algorithm run. And what they found, and Jonah Preddy um, you know, opined about this, was that the things that inspired conversation between close ties on a social network were the things that were the most vitriolic, the most enraging. The, you know, when your crazy uncle says something about QAnon, you're going to comment on that and tell him he's your crazy uncle. And to the algorithm, that looks like things are going great. But in fact, yeah. that's what's causing these negative consequences. And so from a levering perspective, Facebook made a change in an attempt to improve things and had the exact opposite effect. So how do you sort of square and think about these things when it comes to either regulation or what can be done? Well, um, you know, I think what Justin raised and you've just expanded on uh, is a very important point, because if we're first trying to figure out whether there is a phenomenon here that deserves attention, if there is some relationship between social media, 
and uh, a uh, destructive form of divisiveness, uh, one important place to look is what is going on at the company itself. And just to elaborate on the, yep, yep. the story you were just telling, yep. everything you said I think is completely correct, um, but the story goes further. In-house, uh, you know, the data scientists and engineers came back to management and said, we've now studied what, we've, what the company has done, and our conclusion is this backfired. Rather than accomplishing what we wanted to accomplish, we're sort of kind of accomplishing the opposite. And uh, what followed from that was potential fixes were proposed all internally, and those were turned down um, because, as you indicated earlier, there was a danger they would cut into um, in- engagement and yep. ultimately the, the bottom line. Yep. So that story, um, which the Wall Street Journal, I think, laid out effectively and told in, in several different contexts, is a story of a company that actually studies itself pretty uh, you know, diligently, comes up with solutions to the inadvertent problems they're, ca- they're causing, and then sets the potential... Uh, ameliorating steps to one side because they threaten the business model. Um, and that that is a, an important fragmentary um, piece of evidence that there is a problem here. I mean, Facebook would not be repeatedly studying problems, concluding that we have problems, proposing how to fix them, and then turning the fixes down if there was nothing, <laughs> nothing well, going well, okay. on. Okay, so, so let me push curve. on that a little bit. Because in terms of evaluating, you know, progress, and I'm, I'm really not on one side or the other of this, like these are really deep, hard problems with trade-offs, but that's kind of what it comes down to for me, I guess. And so I don't think like you're never going to have cars that don't crash, you know, as I think, uh, Masseri said on, um, Peter Kafka's recode media, you know, once you invented the car, you invented the car crash. And, in a, you know, granted that is a highly regulated environment. And so, yes, let's apply similar regulations to social media, but what do those regulations look like? And so had Facebook publicized the results of those internal studies, which, you know, maybe is a thing that could be forced, um, what would you expect regulators to then do with that information? And, you know, one of the things I think that was reported on was if they removed the reshare button, a lot of the polarization and uh, negative consequences would instantly diminish. Now, that's interesting and also incomplete because, for example, Instagram doesn't have a reshare button and yet has different problems, you know, associated with body image and things like that. So no matter where social media exists and where humans go, there seems to be some problems. So perfection isn't really something that seems attainable, but it seems like they're not doing enough or willing to, as you said, sacrifice some of the bottom line. And so where do you, and maybe this is an impossible question, but where do you see a rebalance or or a more appropriate balance or measure of what success could look like if perfection isn't the standard. Yeah. Well, Justin, I think it's your turn. I'm happy to answer that, but I also don't want to monopolize (laughs) it. Sure. Well, um, you know, I'll just say that um, maybe to your question of, you know, what, what should we do? You know, um, the the very first thing that that we should do, and I I see a handful of, of people who are, uh, academic researchers who are listening to this conversation, um, of course, is create some mechanism to make sure that the type of data that the Wall Street Journal repeat, you know, um, uh, revealed um, is is possible for external independent researchers to come across uh, in a more, you know, um, reasonable fashion than we have in place at the moment. Now, this is a complicated thing. You know, there are legitimate issues to do with 
trading social media data, uh, making it available to researchers in a way that uh, respects privacy, respects free expression, you know, uh, doesn't create uh, problems of its own or have its own own issues. But this is not a, a question that has not been discussed, has not been, um, uh, policies haven't been theorized or come up with. Uh, there are l literally pieces of legislation that are in consideration, um, you know, unfortunately don't seem to be advancing very quickly that would address some of this. And so, you know, th that's one of the first things is to get to a bit of transparency. And I would add too that um, that type of transparency would help to understand the, the linkages between uh, different aspects of our public sphere. What does the media, uh, what is its role? What is the role of political elites? What is the role of, uh, you know, other actors? Uh, what, how do we think about this thing a little more holistically so that we can have broadly policies, whether they are uh, media policies or social media uh, or tech policies, communications policies, that help us to produce a more healthy democracy. Um, and then I'll actually, I just want to add maybe one thing and then I'll turn it over to Paul, um, which is, you know, the, the title of this conversation, is Facebook polarization inevitable? I mean, I would, I would say no, you know, it's not mm -hmm. inevitable. In fact, um, there's a lot of interesting conversation these days around what and, and to what extent social media could play a role in depolarizing um, or reducing division in society. And I think that may be a very fruitful area of discussion. And there are definitely uh, academics that have done very interesting work on what affordances uh, and what changes uh, can, could be done that might you know, help create space for deliberation, help create space for people to you know, at least not um, exacerbate. Let, let me throw some out there, right? Because there's been some examples of product decisions that have been launched. So, for example, in WhatsApp, they reduce the number of reshares to prevent this type of virality. On Twitter, if you attempt to retweet, which again is the reshare action, without reading the article first, and then you're asked, hey, are you sure you want to retweet this? And at least, you know, initial research found that, yes, that actually helped people sort of slow down. You know, it added a little bit of friction and made people be a little more thoughtful about what they shared. Um, in other cases, oh, there was another example that I was going to cite. Um, uh, well, for example, on Instagram, Instagram has actually added a lot of features and functionality to help with uh, bullying, with blocking different words, with uh, different types of controls. So those things are happening to some degree. Um, do you think that those things are effective? I, well, I, I would I would offer that you know I, I think those are examples of things that should be experimented with. Hmm. The platform companies should be given some degree of, of uh, praise and reinforcement for trying those things, um, but they're probably not enough. And you know, beginning with the kind of uh, uh, you know significant uh, uh, increase in uh, transparency, uh, providing enough information about. Uh, how the algorithms, you know, rank and recommend and remove content so that outside people, whether they are researchers at universities or policymakers on Capitol Hill um, or, or the public at large, um, can see exactly, can see how these decisions get made. Uh, that, that would be a, a big 
first step. But I think you can also uh, gain insight by looking at uh, things that companies are already doing. Uh, on a number of occasions, Facebook has actually announced um, that in anticipation of uh, unrest in society, we're, we're about to um, modify our uh, algorithms. We're, we're going to you know, turn the dial, as people say, yep. break the glass, whatever. Yep. Um, and then a few days later, they actually literally say, and now we've turned it back. So there was a, a <laughs> like version a control of burn. Facebook. Yeah, a version of Facebook with that apparently uh, uh, some uh, employees refer to as the nicer Facebook or the nicer newsfeed, and then there's the not so nice newsfeed, which is the norm. Well, one big question that should be discussed publicly is why not do that more systematically? Um, actually, uh, Monica Bickert. Uh, the vice president, uh, you know, for policy, uh, you know, content-related things, uh, was asked that question um, at a congressional hearing in, in April, and she said the answer was, well, there's, when we do that, when we, you know, basically make the filters uh, stronger and, and comb out more potentially incendiary material because, for example, there's an environment like the days after the election in November 2020 or the days before the anticipated verdict in the mm. trial of the Minneapolis a former police officer who was ultimately convicted of killing George Floyd, um, they, they, they turned the dial in, in anticipation of that verdict. She said, we, we don't do that all the time because that would cut off too much free expression. Mm -hmm. Okay, Worry, worrying about false positives and taking too much stuff down is a very valid concern. You, you want to promote uh, you know, free political and cultural uh, debate uh, as best you can. Um, but that's not the, that shouldn't be the end of the discussion. That's like the beginning of the discussion. So, mm. you know, tell us what you are doing to fine-tune the algorithms to diminish the amount of false positive material that you're filtering out. Keep working at it. Ref refine everything. And, and that should be sort of like an, a never-ending process with the goal of, of achieving whatever you thought you were going to achieve when you turned the dial and made the filters, uh, you know, a little stronger. I mean, that... That's the kind of thing that I think if it was debated in public and the companies had to really explain themselves more, more thoroughly would lead to greater insights as to how we could uh, uh, you know, reduce the amount of harmful content and uh, reduce the uh, secondary effects, you know, the externalities that these companies are causing. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that's had its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months or worse. That laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride. 
Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com slash men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because like the image that I have is how, you know, the, the police will send out like a police force or something ahead of, you know, when there's going to be you know riots or there's going to be some protest or something. And the police are there largely, at least ostensibly, to keep the peace or prevent uh, conflagrations of violence breaking out when there is this polarization in real life. And then afterwards, because the police work for us, you know, and are paid for by tax dollars, they are accountable to us. But because Facebook is paid by the advertisers, that type of accountability doesn't really exist because it's a private company. It's a private actor. And so the dichotomy here seems to be a bit that, you know, the public square is actually run by a private actor. And so that is why they are really not that accountable to us. And why, like, I understand what you're asking and proposing and suggesting, but that dynamic feels like it's not really, we almost don't have the concept in capitalism for that type of space. It's a very, it's a very profound point you're making. Uh, how, where do, how do you accomplish accountability? You know, it's not like police forces have all been completely accountable, but as you say, right. the theory of it is, and sometimes the reality is, there is accountability. The, fi- the police chief gets fired. Right. Uh, you know, the the city council uh, announces a wave of reform, and we hope we muddle forward in some constructive way. Mm-hmm. But it's not a hopeless situation. Social media as an industry is anomalous in in connection with government regulation. Uh, unlike the equity markets, which are overseen by the SEC, hmm. or broadcast and radio, which is overseen by the FCC, uh, you know the farmers who are overseen by the agriculture department to some degree, there's no one doing sustained regula- regulation, sustained oversight uh, of social media. The, the one really important law, Section 230, is actually a deregulatory law. It, it's protective of social media industry. Well, that could all change. In th- I'm not saying it necessarily will with our current politics. The very pol- polarization we're talking about right now would probably preclude what I'm, I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. But th- in theory, there's nothing stopping Congress, as we recommended in, in our report, um, from, for example, empowering the uh, FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, to uh, uh, basically uh, write, uh, perhaps with cooperation from industry, uh, a code of conduct that would uh, require, uh, as a legal matter, the companies uh, to exercise a certain degree of transparency, to, for example, explain themselves in terms of how they you know, modify their algorithms and why 
if they only do it for short periods of time, they, you know, don't try doing it for longer periods of time. Uh, and that code of conduct could then be uh, enforced. And the enforcement mechanism wouldn't have to be that um, crazy complicated. You would, uh, you know, you set up a system whereby all the obligations that the companies are required to adhere to would be included in their terms of service with their users. Well, okay, let me, and let me pause you for a second. It, it, and then, and I want to bring up Emily, actually, who can present something of the government's perspective. Um, the FTC already has rules about um, ads and disclosure of ads, um, whether right. it's using you know hashtag sponsored or something along those lines. And it feels like there's one, not a lot of regulation, and two, there's just no enforcement dollars. So. I understand, you know, roughly what you're describing, but how would we actually make that work logistically? Yeah, well, well, actually, I mean, Emily, why don't we bring Emily up here and invite her into the conversation? Um, because I think she can maybe speak to some of the government side of this. Emily, do you want to introduce yourself and uh, give us a little background? Sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Chris and everybody. My name is Emily Tavalarius. I'm a fellow at the Georgetown Beck Center for uh, Social Impact. Um, and I, I teach at Georgetown in Columbia, and I'm a former um, a, a former advisor in the Office of Science Technology Policy at the White House. Um, so what I what I wanted to add here is, you know, this is this is such a fascinating conversation on so many levels. Um, and you know, of course, the short answer is like there's no there is no short answer, <laughs> uh, right? Okay, it's good. like we the most unsatisfying, <laughs> yeah, the most unsatisfying answer ever. Um, but you know, to my mind, a lot of the answer is rooted in having the right people at the table. And right now, the government does not have the right people at the table. To be candid, like no, they're getting the love, right people. I would at the love table. for you to unpack that. What makes them the right people, and who ahead, is currently at the table? Oh, sorry, I must have lost you guys. Oh, you're back. Um, my okay. my my question was, what makes the right people the right people, and who is currently at the table? Yeah. So um, this is it's a tough one because I don't I don't want to ruffle feathers, and it's hard to say that without like offending people candidly, um, but. The, the unvarnished answer is that we have a lot of very well-intentioned, um, well-meaning, well-read people from the policy circles in these positions of power and decision-making authority who quite simply do not understand the technology that they are in a position to regulate. Right. And when I say don't understand it, I mean like they don't understand like functionally what it is, how it works, and how it connects to the business model. And well, you can't send email is, over WhatsApp for starters. Just let's clarify that. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's very easy. Like the FTC, I think, is a really good example of this, where you have a building full of very smart people who really know their stuff. Suddenly, having to 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 deal with companies that they fundamentally don't understand. So when they present a question or a problem to the company, they are met with what to them is a lot of technical jargon that goes largely over their heads. And the companies can essentially really pull a fast one on them in many, in many ways, right? They can, they can talk their way out of almost 
anything because the people they're speaking with are lawyers who don't understand the product. And what we're seeing at the FTC, which I think is a really, really interesting case study here, is they have very proactively brought people in who do understand product. They just appointed a new CTO, Erie Meyer. They are about to bring in a deputy CTO who is also um, an engineer by training. Um, and it's, I think what you, what we're seeing there is the attempt to correct that and say, Hey, what if we teamed out up programmers and people who deeply understand product with lawyers and help them write the, write the questions differently, write the regulations differently in a way that is in the language of the companies and of the products. I don't know if that's satisfying, but and, and who would be the right people to bring in? Are these people who work at these tech companies or who do you imagine yeah. being like kind of able to balance? Because it feels like one of the problems and what you just alluded to is this core tension. And actually, uh, Marissa, I, I believe who's listening mentioned this is, you know, the, the, the bonuses and the, again, the rewards, the incentive structure at Facebook is not to go along with whatever, I don't know, interest of coming up with new regulations, you know, would mean they need to keep going to grow, grow, grow. That's like the Facebook mantra. That's the way they work. And then you have people who want to regulate and they're, they're, uh, beholden to their base and their base is asking questions or, or saying, you know, I feel like I've been shadow banned and all this other stuff that just kind of is, you're like, what are you even talking about? And yet they have a perception who, you know, people who are outside the company who, like you said, maybe don't have the same level of familiarity with how these systems work and how, you know, AI as a kind of black box. Yes, you can like move some levers up and down and you should have some accountability for the, th the outcome of your system. But it's also, at least at this stage of the game, impossible to wholly predict the ways in which humans find ways of manipulating and outsmarting these systems. I mean, that's, that's why absolutely it's really hard to open up these systems. Like as... Uh, so let me give an example of this, uh, just cause I think it's somewhat relevant. There was a conversation yesterday on Twitter about NFTs and specifically about, I believe it's beer.ens and Steph Curry's OpenSea account. And because your uh, Ethereum address is public, I mean, that's how it works. You sort of, you know, put art or NFTs that you've purchased onto your OpenSea profile, that means anybody who can mint these NFTs can sort of throw them around and, you know, put dick pics on your, you know, profile because it's a public address. So even though it costs money to do that, people are willing to do it for the engagement, for the attention seeking, for whatever, which is true about email. Any open system is going to be exploited by any actors because that's the way it works. It, it, it has to function that way. So when it comes to this regulation, I guess I'm just worried that it's really an ongoing nuanced set of trade-offs and balances. And like I said at the beginning, the real question here is about the incentive structures and the decision architectures that we're operating within. And those are the things that I feel like we don't understand. One of the, the suggestions actually that Paul has is that uh, Biden, President Biden should come out and basically make a statement about what, should, what we should do as a culture, as a, as a, I guess, a people about this problem in this challenge that we're not operating as uh, there's no unity, I suppose, or there's just this polarity. I don't know exactly what he would say. And maybe Paul has some, some thoughts about that, but we have to understand that it's not going to, we're never going to a perfect place with our use of social media because humans are imperfect, but we have to keep moving forward in some way that kind of, as you said, sort of, what, what was the word you fumble along? Um, in a sense, 
Yeah, I mean, it's and and I think that actually it it's very similar to the way policy develops in a lot of ways. I'm curious what Paul and Justin think about this, but I Mm, often I talk to my students about you know software development as quite quite analogous to policy. Like we software, right? Exactly. Like it doesn't die, right? Like it doesn't die until you kill it, and like neither is policy. Um, but, but we treat them in a very similar way, which is like, we like write the thing and we put it out there to the world and we're like, great, cool. It's done now. And we don't really (laughs) revisit it. So I think that there's actually a lot more similarity in the way that technology is designed and developed and delivered and managed with policy, but the the processes and the and the systems currently make it very difficult to operate in that sort of ongoing continuous learning continuous action kind of yeah, way. Yeah, actually, so one of the things that I want to point out, and I just pinned a tweet to uh, Congressional Bill S two nine nine of the one hundred seventeenth Congress, um, which is what is it? the Safe Tech Act, and this is from uh, Mark Warner. And when I went down and I read the text of this, what I found was basically it was a diff. You know, I mean, yes, this is this obvious to anyone who's like looked at, um, you know, congressional bills before and how they work and how it's like editing and inserting code. I mean, it literally looks like if I went to GitHub, it's like, okay, here's the before and here's the after. We're going to test it out. Now, the problem with a lot of legislation, as far as I know, ex- is that you can't really do A-B tests. However, we have a federalist system that allows you to do some of these tests at the state-by-state level. And that's why you know the federal government sort of over- oversees interstate commerce. But at the state level, you can do those A-B tests and see which things work and which things don't. And you can take into account local considerations that, you know, California may have to worry about that New York doesn't or that, you know, Michigan, you know, has to deal with or whatever it is. So that's a really interesting system. But it, it doesn't quite work the same way when it comes to software, especially the speed by which software can be tested, deployed, you know, sharded off um, where, you know, you do a whole experiment on New Zealand, you know, and you run it for like three weeks and you've got enough data, you know, to make advances and change. Like we've barely even gotten a bill written, you know, in, in that amount of time. So like, is it just that like the, the way in which we approach regulating the systems has to fundamentally, fundamentally change to work more like the way code, like software code is written? I mean, I think it partially does. And sorry, I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to stop here. But (laughs) my short answer is, I think, I think the short answer is yes. And the long answer um, is no. (laughs) And well, and the longer answer is, which I will not tell you because I'm going to stop talking now. Um, um, It it has to do with a need for more partnership between, I think, the private sector and government in thinking through the nebulousness that you were talking about, Chris, Mm. right? Like we don't know what is going to happen with these products and we can no longer put the muddling through. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. Right. So there has to be a different, we have to, we have to have a different starting point. Yeah, Paul, Justin, I, I, like because you guys have actually put together, and I, I, I pinned a tweet with your recommendations in brief um, about what can be done. And so I really want you guys to now take this opportunity to dive into some of those uh, those ideas. Yeah, and maybe I'll I'll, um, I'll I'll turn it over to Paul to go through through those in in some detail. There, you know, two pieces: the really recommendations to uh, the the government, and then recommendations you know to the platforms themselves. But just to uh, maybe put an underline on on the point you were just making. You know, um, we have in 
this country, you know, regulatory bodies, which have in the past, you know, uh, dealt with new technologies and uh, new media technologies in particular, and have over a period of years been able to make rules and set precedent and then uh, study the Im impact of those rules and then uh, make changes along the way. And, you know, unfortunately, that process, that process is, is a bit broken. Um, and that's, that's a major uh, piece of this. Unfortunately, you know, that, that, that process is suffering to some extent from, uh, from, from the root cause of polarization as well. So, you know, that's, that's something to be kind of thought, thought about. But Paul. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we actually start, I mean, I started to talk about um, uh, some of our recommendations. We, we have a, a very ambitious recommendation uh, concerning the FTC. I have no illusion that that's going to happen um, tomorrow or even next year. Uh, but in, in a better, um, more more uh, rational political environment, I think that the idea could be discussed. And that, that is to, for the first time, apply some type of systematic uh, oversight uh, to the uh, to this industry, uh, and I think the code of conduct that we refer to, you know, could involve and, and incorporate ideas from industry, uh, but ultimately it would uh, be enforced uh, by the government. And we've proposed that it be enforced through the FTC and its existing authority, uh, you know, to address, uh, you know, false and deceptive, uh, you know, con consumer practices. And the deception would come in if the company was re required to. Uh, make certain disclosures as part of their uh, uh, terms of service, and then if those terms of service were uh, ignored, uh, the FTC could uh, could step in. Again, you would need a you would need a more muscular FTC with more uh, resources than it has now. Absolutely, as I said, there there are a lot of uh, a lot of hurdles here. Um, we also have suggested that um, Congress ought to uh, consider uh, encouraging uh, the exploration of alternatives. Um, to the current business models. I mean, there are, there are technologists and entrepreneurs out there who are imagining a different way to do social media. Uh, for example, to you know separate uh, the uh, you know the sort of network uh, membership component of the social media platform from perhaps like the content moderation component and allow people who are on the basic uh, platform to choose from multiple uh, pr providers of. Uh, content moderation, giving choice and giving the opportunity to experiment. So, so let me let me jump in there because there's two examples of that that already exist that I think might mm -hmm. be useful for you to be aware of, and maybe you already are. But one is mm -hmm. Block Party, uh, which is a service that essentially kind of outsources that type of content moderation, content moderation as mm -hmm. a service. And then the other, it may not exist yet, but this is something that Jack Dorsey from Twitter has talked about, um, and right. maybe related to the Blue Sky you know, decentralization of Twitter effort, which is the ability to choose different algorithms for your mm -hmm. feed. So essentially, right. you know, for everyone, there's a bundle of or a collection of content that you could be shown every time you log in. And some of that is just, you know, public content from the broader space. And then there's stuff that your friends or people you follow have recently posted. And the computer algorithm or the system algorithm, whatever, decides you know, very, very quickly, very, very quickly, which things to show you. And then as you scroll down, it sort of like pulls from that basket. And, you know, theory, theoretically, you may never exhaust that. You could choose different levers or different sources of algorithms that do or mm -hmm. care about different things to show you. And, you know, I can say personally, I've been logging into Instagram recently and my explore page 
has been vacillating wildly. You know, it, it goes from, you know, tattoos and cocktails to the other day it was like puppies and ducks walking down the road. I was like, what is this? I was like, oh, the, there's a glitch in the matrix. I know what's happening. But the fact that you could choose, you know, for your own personal interest might be an opportunity for people who are building the future um, to think about. Now, okay, we've been going for about an hour. Um, I, I really appreciate your time and your attention in this. And I want to jump into another topic. But if you guys want to bail, now would be an opportunity. Um, and I can open up the room to more folks. I will give you a preview uh, of this topic and you decide if you want to stick around. So we've talked a lot about polarization specifically on, I would say, sort of newsfeed content. You know, Facebook as we know it, Facebook as it has existed since I want to say 2016 or so. And a lot of the regulations that we're talking about in some ways are, are retroactive or retrospective. They're about things that happened in the past, trauma that has occurred. How do we heal from that? How do we fix it? How do we prevent that from happening in the future? Now, prior to recording today, Shrep, the Facebook CTO, who actually met when he was at Mozilla, um, and I was working at Mozilla Firefox, um, has announced that he is stepping down. He's becoming a senior fellow. He's going to continue to help to recruit and sort of build out fellowships and stuff like that. But he's out, and Boz is in. Now, Boz is the guy that's been working on Oculus and the metaverse. And I feel like Zuckerberg has been teasing this for several weeks, so this is not new, uh, I would say, I would say like, you know, Shrep was slowly probably, you know, walking out the door and, uh, Zuck was, was conferring with Boz, by the way, I'm just making this all up and essentially suggesting, okay, we're going to pivot this to become the metaverse company. We're going to be in VR. We're going to be in a different world. The newsfeed is gradually going to, I don't know if it's going to die off, but the world that we're going to be in is much more immersive, is much different than the one that we're in now. The regulations that will be written or are being written currently are for two-dimensional media. So my question to you guys who are here now, who have just come out with this report, is how or does this impact the metaverse? What things should we be thinking about and preparing for and per 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 perhaps preventing when we enter into that space. You know, whether or not it's going to happen, I don't know, but to me this signals that Zuck wants to own the metaverse. And that's where we're going next. That's definitely for Justin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I mean I I would uh I'd point to two things and I think they are consistent with the recommendations in our report. I mean, mm -hmm. first again is is the transparency. Um, mm. You know, if you're talking about these, you know, far more immersive and, and, and tactile uh, experiences that uh, using devices that m might have various uh, inputs that are that are quite advanced compared to our current, uh, you know, inputs into social media systems, uh, which are largely about text and typing and, and being on a, a two-dimensional screen, if we're adding in, you know, um, neural interfaces and we're adding in biometrics and we're adding in um you know um display heads up displays and we're adding in you know uh various uh, tracking of our, our fovea whatever it mm -hmm. might be mm -hmm. you know we're going to need um more transparency and the ability for people to to study those things and and in, in this case as well i think study everything not only um the types of questions that we've raised in this report, but also 
um, physical and physiognomic impacts of, of using these things, uh, as well as mental health ones. So, you know, transparency is going to be key. And then the second thing, uh, which is obviously far way decades now past due, is uh, is, is trans is privacy legislation. You know, we've got to have some rules um, that are are consistent across the the nation around around privacy, and that that seems to me to be probably one of the biggest weaknesses right now of the American regulatory regime with regard to technology and, you know, something that we're getting behind on uh, with regard to other democracies that take these things seriously. We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. 1Password. 1Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. 1Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. 1Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you ka-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 30 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify transformed ResumeWriters.com from the spaghetti code backend I cobbled together in college to the world-class commerce platform it sits on today. And Shopify can do the same for your business. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash ride, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash ride now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify.com slash ride. Interesting. Take them seriously. Um, I, have Emily, to add I, yeah, I was going to say, Emily seems to be yeah. in violent agreement. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And the, the other thing I would add here is that, you know, a lot of... Uh, a lot of what you were just kind of running through as the potential like future state of Facebook is so much in this in the futurist realm, which ties back to something that you said earlier, Chris, about not not being able to predict the downside, right, of the technology, like how it will be. What's the black mirror, right? And the question right. is, well, we not, have a couple seasons of that. Is now. there going to right like? It, 
we're not in a place where we're like, oh, is there going to be a Black Mirror? Yeah. Now we've seen that there will be, like pretty much always. And product teams need to operate in a way that assumes that is the case and and be structured in a manner that is is looking for and ready to respond when that happens. So what I'm what I'm getting at here is that part of if they were smart, they would want to collaborate with government because if what they do is build something that has a a really bad, scary black mirror side to it, the government is going to come for them at some point, right? It doesn't matter who's in power. At some point, someone is going to intervene in some way. And it is... What makes you so sure about that? I mean, like, it just, it feels like it's going to be too, like a dollar short, a day late, all that. I mean, it might be, but the, the issue is like, isn't it better for the government to write regulations that are actually like useful and implementable rather than write regulations and policies that you then have to like bend yourself into bizarro principles? Yeah, I wish we could get that first thing out, right? I mean, even yeah. even Facebook, I don't know, like I listen to a lot of podcasts and the number of ads that I've heard where Facebook is like calling for regulation is more than one. It's It's been going on for a while and yet we still don't have that. So I, I, I don't want to be like the, I don't know, the contrarian, but it's just, I, as you said, the right people are not at the table. The incentives are not there. I mean, if, if people were, I don't know if it's money or like what it would take to get the right people at the right table to write the right regulations that would actually bring about the things that you're describing. You know what I mean? Like it just feels like the tech companies are the ones that are making all the money and are offering these lavish lifestyles. And, you know, you've worked at the government and it just doesn't seem like that's the case there. Actually, well, but this is, this is actually, there's a, there's a really interesting, um, there's interesting proof against that actually. And that is that, and I, I am one of them, many of my colleagues at the U S digital service and 18F and who have gone to work for the, um, for various parts of the government, including the FTC are people who left those lucrative jobs. Yep. Um, and the bottom line is once they went into government, they saw they saw how much further their skill set could go mm. in the public impact. And it's not for everyone, but I think there is I think it's safe to say that there is a pretty sizable cohort of disillusioned uh, technologists of all stripes, right? <laughs> Product, data, programmers, designers. I mean, clearly the people leaking uh, the stuff to the Wall Street Journal, they should go get a job with the USDS. They are the, they are the people, Chris, like those, yeah. if any of you are in the audience, like DM me, we need you, right? Like, um, so those are the people who can make the biggest difference because they've had their hands on these products. So if they're tired of what it looks like, yeah. go help people who want to do the right thing, do the right thing. Because right now they're kind of bumbling along <laughs> and they need your help. Yeah, totally. Well, all right. Um, I feel like my metaverse thing wasn't exactly bitten, which is totally fine because it's the future and who knows. And we've got a lot of stuff to deal with today. And right now I did pin one tweet from, um, Justin's tech policy press on an upcoming event on October 7th. Justin, do you want to promo that? Well, yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, we're doing an event on, uh, October 7th, 1 PM to four 30 uh, Eastern, um, which is on this issue that you raised earlier, the, or that Paul raised, I suppose, uh, from our recommendations, um, looking at the idea of uh, unbundling social media, um, you know, what would happen if we had more decentralized or unbundled 
uh, social media networks and components. And you mentioned Block Party. Um, the, the founder of Block Party is one of the speakers, along with uh, a, a bunch of other interesting people, Cory Doctorow, uh, Frank, Frank Fukuyama, uh, you know, Stanford political scientist, um, uh, Daphne Keller at Stanford, Natalie uh, Maricol, uh, Richard Reisman, Ramesh Srinivasan, um, Joan Donovan, um, just a handful of folks that are going to kind of think through uh, some of the kind of policy and idea issues around that uh, set of proposals, but also some of the legal and and kind of commercial complications um, and kind of look at what how that might happen or how it could happen, what the obstacles are, and think that through. So, um, you know, that's also pinned at Tech Policy Press for anybody on Twitter. Awesome. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end here. Um, I do want to uh, re-extend um, at Emily Tav, T-A-V, um, if you want to talk to actually going into the government and helping to become part of the solution to the problem, I, I you know, believe that she's ready and willing to help you uh, do something, um, which I think is great. And I think we'll end it there. Uh, on behalf of Brian, I want to thank everyone for honoring his anniversary um, because I support their marriage and that matrimonial bliss um, <laughs> by hosting this myself. Um, this show may not go out immediately this weekend because we actually have the second episode of the World Cup of Entrepreneurs coming out, which is a super fun, super great episode. Um, but obviously, this stuff is timely. And um, anyways, I want to thank Justin. I want to thank Paul. I want to thank Emily for coming up here. Um, we've been going at this for over an hour now, and we could just go on indefinitely. I would love to have you guys back on sometime when we've got some of these things, you know, written down um, in terms of how we want to see this happen. Um, and then I don't know, God, the, the whole metaverse thing—it's—it's it's interesting. Um, any any parting thoughts? Anything that you guys want people to check out? You know, obviously that that event is one. Um, where actually, Paul? Where can people find this report? Uh, you can go uh, to the homepage of the Center for Business and Human Rights at NYU. Um, and right on the homepage, there's a banner across the top. You click on, and it takes you right to the report. Is there is there like a short link or something? Not really. Uh, I'm not sure. I know what you mean. <laughs> I mean like I mean, a short it, web address. The, the landing page for the report is not a long link. It's quite quite modest in length. Okay, you can B -H -R find it in my tweets as well. bhr.stern.nyu.edu. Okay, that works great. Okay, guys. Um, again, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This was another episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience, and we will see you here next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks.